ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, my name is Matt Brand. Welcome to the program. Should there be a moratorium on new mines in the Northern Territory until the old mines are properly cleaned up? It's an idea that's got the backing of some traditional owners and the head of the Northern Land Council. Let's start with Redbank. Let's clean that up before we start looking at new mines. Also today, a trip to a Rambutan farm in the top end that is busy picking fruit and also busy expanding. Not only have we increased our planting of uh, Rambutans, but we've been fortunate enough to get a grant from the government to extend our netting. You'll also today get to meet the Kimberley Stockman who kick-started a successful class action against the government over stolen wages. This is all coming up on today's Country Hour. I hope you can stick around. We're broadcasting right across the Territory on the ABC. G'day there if you're tuned in via the podcast. And you might like to join the conversation this afternoon as well. What's your take on that question? Should there be a moratorium on new mines in the Northern Territory until the old mines are properly cleaned up? 0487 is our text number here at the Country Hour. 0487 And when I say old mines, I guess I'm talking about legacy mines. Do you know how many of them are in the Northern Territory? The answer is around 900 of them. 900 legacy mines scattered across the Northern Territory. The NT government yesterday passed laws to change how those legacy mines are fixed, as well as introducing laws regulating environmental approvals on new mining activities. Here is the Mining Minister, Nicole Manison, talking about the legacy mines bill. So it is important that we have strong legislation in place. What we have with our legacy mines unit is a huge amount of work that is taking place to deal with those legacy features that we see across the Northern Territory, in some cases it could be uh, mine shafts that we're worried uh, were not properly remediated, that we want to make sure are safe. In some cases uh, it could be um, that we have significant contamination of the sites, of soils and so forth. And we've increased this team. They'll be moving from five staff members to ten staff members in recognition of the important work that they do. In some cases, it will be that um, some of these sites will actually come back to life. They'll be able to operate again and the remediation works will be able to be carried out by the new proponent. That is their mining processing um, going through that site. And we see some great examples of that happening in Tennant Creek right now. Nicole Madison, the Territory's Minister for Mining, speaking in Parliament. The Environmental Defender's Office has been watching these reforms closely. NT Managing Lawyer Eleanor Fang spoke to Dan Fitzgerald about the two mining-related bills which have been passed. The first bill was the Environment Protection Legislation Amendment Bill. This is the EP Mining Bill. It created a new system for the licensing of mining operators in the Territory. That licensing system will be operated now by the Minister for the Environment and the Department of Environment, Parks and Water Security. And that replaces the current system that we have for regulating mining activities under 
the Mining Management Act. That act is going to be repealed. That act was previously administered by the Minister for Mining and Industry and the Department of Industry, Tourism and Trade. So there's quite a change in here in terms of the regulatory separation. The second bill is the Legacy Mines Remediation Bill. So that's the Legacy Mines Bill. It addresses the management of legacy mine sites and legacy mine features, which are mine sites and infrastructure, which have been abandoned by their original operators. So the original mining operators. The Legacy Mines Bill is also administered by the Department of Industry, Tourism and Trade and the Minister for Mining and Industry. And it authorizes people to carry out remediation activities. So we're talking about rehabilitation and cleanup activities in relation to those legacy mine sites and features. Obviously, legacy mines are a big issue right across the Northern Territory. How does these reforms help fix up those mines? Well, we actually don't think that the the legacy mines bill is necessarily going to be fixing up all of the issues that we currently see. Um, one of the issues I think that we continue to see is whether there will be the connection between the two. So the EP mining bill and the legacy mines bill, one of our issues is the appropriate costing of security bonds and closure planning. And those are two issues that we see as imperative to ensuring that the mines are appropriately closed and rehabilitated and that the communities that are directly affected are not left to, to essentially foot the bill. So when a mining company starts digging a hole in the ground, do they have to have enough money in the bank to clean it all up when they start? So right now, the way that security bonds are calculated is that it is conducted on a staged basis. What we are saying is that the current method for security bonds to cover all of the rehabilitation is currently not sufficient. So we've seen that in the inadequacy of the MacArthur River Mine Security Bond, which does not account for the hundreds of years of post-closure costs that would be required, um, as well as, for example, the security bond for Red Bank Mine, which has been plagued with ongoing environmental issues. So we say that security bonds should be calculated based on detailed, regularly revised closure plans and should be adequate to cover the full rehabilitation costs for all disturbances for the entire life of a mine. So that includes post-closure monitoring, maintenance and reporting costs after the closure of the mine. The reforms do not change the way that security bonds are calculated, which is a huge missed opportunity. This moving of the regulatory role from the Department of Industry over to the Department of Environment, this has been discussed for a while. Why do you mm -hmm. think it's so important? Well, I think we've had a problem in mining regulation in the Territory for some time, where essentially the agency that approved mines also enforced compliance. So in our view, this is a conflict of interest that the new laws actually seek to remove. So the laws will improve transparency and they'll create that regulatory separation that we say is required between the agency that's approving the mines, which will now be Department of Environment, and then the agency also that's enforcing compliance. So we have Environment Department is mostly going to be responsible for regulating these developments. And with these reforms to the mining bill, the Environment Defender's Office has raised concerns about the ability of the public to comment on mining applications. What's your concern mm -hmm. there? Well, we say that people should have the right to comment on mining applications 
but also to seek review of decisions. This should be a right for the community, especially the people who are directly affected by mining projects. So I think I'm referring to people who are living, you know, near a mining project or the mining project is on their country. Um, and community members, especially those people directly affected, should not only have the right to comment on the mining applications, but also to seek review of those decisions. These bills have passed the Parliament, but there is still some opportunity for the public to comment and put some submissions in. Uh, what will the EDO be suggesting in terms of these reforms? Well, we are looking forward to working with the department and sitting down during these consultation times to understand what is proposed on their end and so that we can properly comment we are very hopeful that these consultations won't just be with stakeholders and with agencies, but will actually involve on the ground, in person, face-to-face consultations with directly affected communities. Eleanor Feng, who is from the Environmental Defenders Office. As I mentioned earlier, there are some Indigenous leaders who want to stop any new mining developments until there's a firm commitment to rehabilitate the environment has been damaged by old legacy mines. Traditional owners near the infamous Red Bank copper mine in the Gulf Country are angry that decades of promises to clean that mine up have not been honoured, as Jane Barden reports. For three decades, the deserted Red Bank copper mine on the NT's Gulf of Carpentaria has been leaking battery acid strength contamination into the environment, stretching 40 kilometres into Queensland. Cultural custodian, Jungai Donald Shabforth, can't believe the scene. Oh, I feel broken hearted for this. See it like this. Piles of disintegrating bags release chemicals into the wind. Rusted infrastructure creaks and orange and white bands crust the leaking tailings dam. It's just devastated. I think it's a wake-up call for us to say, right, no more mining on this country. Acid leaching has turned the nearby Hanrahan's Creek fluorescent lime green, devoid of plants and fish. Donald Shadforth's family used to gather food here. When I was a kid, it was a beautiful little paradise here. And it makes you feel sad because this country crying for help, you know. Since Redbank Mine collapsed in 1996, successive NT governments have promised the pollution would be stopped. The NT Mining Minister, Nicole Manison, is now promising a study will start into rehabilitation options. And that consultation is continuing with the community there to look at what is the best way to go forward with rehabilitation of that site. But the mine site's native title holders, including Keith Rory, are sceptical. Well, we heard it for them before. They keep telling us they can fix their mine. Joe Martin Jard is CEO of traditional owner body, the Northern Land Council. As far as we can see from the Northern Territory Government, it's um, all talk and no action. All we're hearing is about a plan to get a plan. The NT government is actively pursuing mining developments to help supply critical minerals needed for the renewable energy sector, including wind turbines and electric cars. The Land Council wants rehabilitation to start first. Let's start with Red Bank. Let's clean that up before we start looking at new mines. The Land Council is also worried that new laws allow the NT government to use an $88 million rehabilitation fund for other purposes. Joe Martin-George. We thought that the work would be about rehabilitating existing mines, not learning how to do it. If the Territory Government wants to research how to clean up legacy mines, well, you know, pay for it. Why should it come out of this fund? 
Mining Minister Nicole Munnison. It's actually uh, very important and sound that we make sure we use this fund to help with research because it will help drive down costs in other future remediation projects. If a mine can be remediated whilst also becoming a productive mine again, that is also a good thing. Another mining company is hoping to soon start a new copper and critical minerals project right beside Red Bank. NT Minerals Executive Chairman Mal James is trying to offer reassurance it won't cost pollution. To get any new mine up, you will have to make sure you're complying with uh, world's best practice. But native title holders, including Donald Shadforth, are deeply opposed to any more mining before the anti-government rehabilitates Red Bank. Not ever again, unless they do something about this, clean this up. As native title holder Donald Shadforth speaking there to Jane Barden. You can read more about this story up online right now if you search for ABC News. And I wonder what you make of those comments by the NLC's Joe Martin-Jard, this comment here. Let's start with Red Bank. Let's clean that up before we start looking at new mines. Yeah, this idea of cleaning up the old legacy mines of the Northern Territory before allowing new mines to go ahead. You can join the conversation this afternoon. 0487 is our text. G'day, it's Brent Murdoch. I'm the uh, Director and General Manager of Vista Gold. I look after the Mount Todd project and we always listen to the country hour. And here at the country hour, we are seeking comment from the Minerals Council of Australia. Get its thoughts on what's been heard today on ABC Radio. It is a quarter to one. Ooh, I've got a little note here from Sealink. It's wishing to advise those looking to catch the ferry from Cullen Bay to Mandora. The one o'clock ferry, so the one that's leaving, or meant to be leaving in 15 minutes, it won't be happening, right? It's been cancelled because of a low, low tide. There's simply not enough water to get the ferry in. So the one o'clock ferry service has been cancelled, but the tide will lift and we'll be back to normal. Uh, this afternoon, but uh, if you're in the car racing to get to Cullen Bay to catch that ferry at 1, or I guess the Mandora ferry at 1.20, no, that's been cancelled, and Sealink apologises for the inconvenience. Ooh, and it is a low tide. I've got here a low at uh, a quarter past one of 0.6 metres. Ooh, that is low. Hey, up next on the Country Hour, you'll get to meet the Kimberley Stockman who kick-started a successful class action against the WA government over stolen wages. He'll share his story with you next. Right across the Territory on the ABC, you are tuned into the Country Hour. The Premier of Western Australia has made an official apology in the state's parliament to Aboriginal people who worked often on cattle stations for little or no pay. And this apology has come in the wake of the WA government agreeing to pay $180 million to settle a class action brought on behalf of thousands of Aboriginal people who had their wages withheld between 1936 and 1972. Here is the Premier, Roger Cook. I want to say to all Aboriginal workers 
that today the government of WA recognises that those laws and policies were wrong. And we acknowledge and apologise for the fact that those laws and policies cause great harm and disadvantage. And a policy, an apology does not change what happened. It cannot. But it recognises the importance an apology has as recognition, as a move towards reconciliation and a step in a healing process. In bringing a close to this shameful part of Western Australia's history, on behalf of the state of Western Australia, I apologise to the Aboriginal men, women and children who worked in Western Australia between 1936 and 1972, often for decades, for no pay or not enough pay. We acknowledge that many of these people have not lived to see this day. For their family members who remain, we are sorry for the hurt and loss that your loved ones suffered. Their strong shoulders carried the weight of their families and communities. Their strong hands built up this state's economy. Their strong minds and spirits pursued justice in the decades that followed, leading to this moment and the recognition they rightly deserve. To you all, we say sorry. That's the WA Premier, Roger Cook, speaking in Parliament, apologising to the Aboriginal people subject to legislation that allowed their wages to be withheld. Now, there's a similar class action over stolen wages that's ongoing here in the Northern Territory. In a statement to the Country Hour that was sent to us earlier this month from Shine Lawyers, it said the parties are currently preparing to engage in a mediation and we are encouraged by the settlement reached in Western Australia and hope the Commonwealth shares the applicant's desire to resolve the Northern Territory matter without the need to proceed to a trial. So that's uh, something to watch here in the Northern Territory. This class action in WA, it was led by Mervyn Street, a stockman and well-known artist who was born on Louisa Down Station. Both of his parents worked on that station, which is located in the heart of the Kimberley region, but they never earned a proper wage. And they're the reason that he chose to bring the ultimately successful class action against the WA government on behalf of thousands of Aboriginal Australians like his parents who had their wages stolen. He shared his story with Alice Marshall. Imagine working on a station year in, year out. But all the while, something's missing. The story was all covered, you know. They didn't know nothing about it. Guni Andy man Mervyn Street has led the fight to shine a light on the experiences of his people. I did it. I just can't believe what I, oh, I did it. When you picture life on a station, it's often sweeping planes, cattle and cowboys that come to mind. For Mervyn Street, who started working on a cattle station in the central Kimberley when he was a child, this vision is part of his story. All this mob, one out push, mustering, bringing all the cattle, you know, putting it in the bullock paddock, and my dad is doing that bullock paddock. He has fond memories of working alongside his dad, but there was a brutal side to life on the station. We had no power in the camp. We had no tap in the old lake in the camp. We just, all people at the old Creek and River, 
washing up their clothes from what a bars and you know? very hard life in that time now bars from nothing you know over at the camp housing white people things were different they had water they had thing what they need because they didn't care about the people in the you know reserve whatever and for Mervyn and his family pay came in the form of food rations and black pennies every fortnight you had to go get a ration you know flour sugar tea a bit of money just a black penny yeah. And there were white people working at these stations as well. What were they getting paid? I don't know how much they've been getting. Droving, and there's a lot of droving, cattle droving everywhere. As Mervyn continued working on a station into his 30s, he still wasn't paid for what he did. At the time, that was legal. Into the 1970s, the state government could withhold the majority of an Aboriginal person's wage. And then he started the class action. That must have been a big decision to do that. Because it's true, you know, the old people used to work with nothing, you know, just, just for the ration, and now they never get nothing, you know. It's not only the people in my staking area, but other staking, you know, everywhere. They've done a lot of job, you know, and I don't know how much they've been getting, you know. But thanks to Mervyn leading legal action, 50 years on, that money's finally being returned. And they knew, they know, but I ought to bring it out, you know. I ought to bring it out in my story. Now he's happening, you know. And now he's not secret, you know. It's everybody know, you know. Oh, this thing, what I did, you know, for the people. Not only for the people just around the Kimberley, but all over, you know. Are you proud? Oh, yeah. I'm proud, but some people might be proud too, what I did, you know, for them, you know. I just can't believe what I, how I did it. That's Mervyn Street sharing his story to Alice Marshall. And talking about the class action against the WA government, which has resulted in about $180 million going to Aboriginal stock men and women who had their wages withheld during that period from 1936 to 1972. ABC Books has great reads to enjoy this summer. From Richard Glover, making the world better and less annoying in Best Wishes. Yeah, maybe they really should ban leaf blowers. The story of Western music in Ed LeBrock's Soundbites. This is music history as you've never read it before. And humour and hope from the heart of Australia in Dr Amelia Scott's The Flying Vet. There's no ducking around the corner for milk out here. Three great books and audiobooks available in bookstores and online. You are tuned into the Country Hour and we're hearing from you on 0487 1057. Keith in Malax says Matt Labor is becoming the apology party. Fair Dinkum, who's next, reckons Keith. We've also been talking legacy mines on the Country Hour today. You may have heard earlier this comment from the head of the NLC, Joe Martin-Jard. Let's start with Red Bank. Let's clean that up before we start looking at new mines. Yeah, this idea of cleaning up old legacy mines before allowing new mining developments. I've got a text here from Bayini and Ian who say, Matt, regarding legacy mines in the Northern Territory, while still being actively rehabilitated, there have been claims that the Ranger uranium mines rehab work is still unfunded to the tune of around $2 billion. 
and will go outside its original lease time frames. Now, this has been one of the highest profile and regulated and contentious mines surrounded by World Heritage Country and regulated by the Commonwealth Government. So at the moment, we just have to see how this unfolds. What chance do the hundreds of lesser-known mines have of being properly funded, says Baini and Ian this afternoon. 0487 1057 is our text here at the Country Hour. What's your thoughts on this idea of cleaning up the legacy mines before allowing new ones? Do the mango bingo. We all go bongo for the mango bingo. Quick bit of mango news for you before we hit the one o'clock news. There were 3,000 trays picked in the Darwin region last week. So the season around Darwin, pretty much done and dusted. In Catherine, 108,000 trays were picked. The season has wrapped up in Kununurra and the harvest now ramping up over in Queensland. I was just looking at the stats in terms of the amount of mangoes being picked in the lead up to Christmas. The AMIA is expecting the national industry to pick around 1.1 million trays in the four weeks leading up to Christmas this year, which sounds a lot, but it's well down on the 2.4 million trays that were picked last year in the lead up to Christmas. So a few mangoes around, but it is a lighter crop, that is for sure. It's one o'clock. I'll see you back here in five minutes for a chat with the Weather Bureau. Cool you down during hot December. Hello, my name is President Mary Allen and I'm from Samoa. Lo- I love mangoes, I love picking mangoes, I love to work here in Australia. You listen to uh, Country Hour. Matt Brown with you this afternoon. In a moment, we'll take a trip to a Remitan farm in the top end, which is busy picking fruit and also busy expanding. Not only have we increased our planting of uh, Remitans, but We've been fortunate enough to get a grant from the government to extend our netting. That is coming up on your radio before 1.30. And should there be a moratorium on new mines in the Northern Territory until the old legacy mines are cleaned up? We've been talking about this this afternoon. Let's start with Red Bank. Let's clean that up before we start looking at new mines. You're joining the conversation this afternoon on 0487991057. Should there be a stop to all new mines until the old ones are cleaned up? Greg in perhaps says, well, at the slow rate of development across the board in the Northern Territory, the mines will be clean before any other development occurs. Anyway, says Greg, someone here says, with the mining, should it be the cash retained until they overcome hacking? Ooh. And uh, a few more questions coming through about Ranger not having, well, people concerned that Ranger uranium mine has not got enough money to properly rehabilitate itself. We might provide you with a little update on that in just a moment, actually. Stick around for that. Let's go to the Weather Bureau. Moses Rico is there this afternoon. Good to hear from you, Moses. How are you? I'm going well, thanks, Matt. You're a Rambutan fan? Uh, I I do actually like them, mm. yes, but I haven't had one for a while. So well, tis this, well, the out. season's only just getting underway, so it's it's been a good you know ten months or so, but yep. uh, they're back in season, which means Christmas can only be around the corner, and um, yeah, I was hanging out on a farm this morning actually, and uh, they're looking the goods and they're very sweet, so yes. keep your eyes peeled. I will. Yep, I will. Um, 
Let's talk rain. Ramby Tans love rain. I think most of us love rain. Uh, there's been a bit. What, what are some of the best figures up to 9 o'clock this morning? So the highest rainfall we had was uh, Adelaide River, had 54 millimetres there, and then some other isolated locations uh, looking in the uh, between the 10 to 20 millimetre mark there around parts of the Daly District, um, Howard River 15, um, Cattle Creek in the Tanami, or actually Gregory probably, uh, just under 15 millimetres there. In the Southern Districts, uh, looking at highest falls we had there looks like uh, let's bring it up here it, a little bit lower there probably in the um, uh, 10 millimeter range there at places near tea tree um, there so looking at the actual radar and the satellite imagery starting to fire up near a trough over the I guess it's a Barclay district extending into the Tanami and just north of that trough into the Gregory it's quite active in the southern parts of the Daly I've got some uh, uh, thunderstorms going at the moment. Um, and look, in the south, there's probably a, a decent line that's, uh, I guess, in the s- southern interior of WA that's making its way to the NT WA border and probably heading into the Lassiter district in the next couple of hours. So keeping an eye on that one, that's looking pretty good. Um, and elsewhere, just some showers around Alice Springs. Um, a couple of sparks uh, well to the northeast of Alice at the moment. So just showers at the moment, but mm-hmm. they might see a thunderstorm as well later this afternoon in the area. Yeah, um, so this is this is coming in from the west and, yeah, I don't, you know. Yeah, in if the Alice southern part. Is, yeah. yeah. If Alice Springs is not getting a... Uh, a sprinkle right now looks like it will be in the next sort of 10 20 minutes according yeah, to the radar it, there probably is rainfall in the i guess greater area of alice springs um but just none in the gauge at the moment that definitely could change though yeah. in the coming hours um yeah pretty much that's that's what it is there and it's looking it's pretty impacting from the north right down to the south today so yeah it's, a, it's good. the the radar it's like a christmas tree out there at the yes. moment which is which is yep. great it'll be december on friday this is what we want to see yes that's right um i should mention though matt that those thunderstorms particularly over the tanami and lassiter districts uh could be severe. Uh, we could see some heavy falls and potentially damaging wind gusts with the thunderstorms in that area there for today. That area kind of extends towards the east and we might see parts of the Simpson, even parts of the Barclay district um, uh, producing some severe thunderstorms in those areas there tomorrow. So I guess the severe thunderstorm risk is is on the cards for today and tomorrow. Uh, and just keep an eye out on the website if any warnings are issued with regards to, to those thunderstorms. Okay. Anything else on the horizon that you think we should be aware of? Um, I think in the horizon, on the horizon, we might start to see some clearance in the south for a brief period, uh, in the southern districts, that is. Once this, I guess it's a mid-level trough that's moving slowly towards the east. Once that clears off, we might get some clearance in the south. Temperatures might start to warm up again um, later in the weekend and into early next week. Uh, other than that, in the top end, those showers and thunderstorms still continuing, Matt. Uh, chances that we are seeing some thunder showers around the uh, rural area as we speak. Um, and those chances continuing, but maybe some better chances around, particularly Darwin area might uh, eventuate, maybe from next week, 
um, with we uh, maybe seeing those thunderstorms initiating a little bit closer uh, to to the Darwin area. But uh, that's pretty much it, Matt. Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time, Moses. Appreciate it. You're welcome. And uh, looking at that radar, wow, what a lot of colour there is this afternoon, suggesting that it's raining as we go to air at places like Birundudu Cattle Station, Inverway, Orange Creek Station in Central Australia. Looks like it's getting a, a drop or five this afternoon. If it is raining at your place, let the rest of us know. We love the weather reports here at the Country Hour. So if it's raining this afternoon at your place, let the rest of us know on zero four eight seven double nine. 1057. Quite a few storms around this afternoon. And as Moses mentioned, a few of them might get a bit nasty later on. So do stay up to date via ABC Radio. G'day, I'm Brad Inglis from Sturt Plain Station, south of Dunmara on the Stewart Highway, and you're listening to the NT Country Hour. A cattle station near the Queensland border has raised nearly $3,000 for the Royal Flying Doctor Service, Tobermory Station. It's taken up a month-long fitness challenge, which involved running and biking hundreds of kilometres to raise money for the Flying Doctor, which is wonderful. Tobermory's Marley Blake had a chat to Victoria Ellis about the fundraiser and what she did as part of it. Yeah, you just choose the amount of kilometres that you wanted to do for the month, so it was you know, you could choose any amount. Or um, I think I chose around 42 in the end. And then you can choose any way that you'd like to do it. So one of the girls here, she was cycling and then I was running slash walking. Um, so, yeah, it kind of really included everyone, which was good. So how many kilometres did you end up doing? I ended up doing, I think I did a few more than what I'd um, signed up to do, maybe about 45 Wow, and was it hard to fit that in on top of all the other jobs that you've got to do out there? Yeah, it was definitely hard, but I find that um, if I get up in the morning and go, then it kind of yeah, sets you up for a good day. So it was good to um, have the extra motivation to get up and do that in the morning. Can you tell me what it was like actually doing those Ks as well? Because you must have, you must have. I mean, I know you're outside every day anyway, but it must have given you some nice opportunities to walk along and look at the land and maybe inhale a bit of dust. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It was nice just to um, appreciate everything and I guess just to actually look around and see what's going on with the wildlife and everything like that. Because, you know, we're always out working in it, but it takes... A moment like that to actually slow down and appreciate everything that is around you. And why the RFDS? What, why was it important that you guys could support that charity in particular? Well, over the last three years that I've been here, the RFDS has been so great to us. We've had many, many, many times when they've um, landed here in the plane between our staff and then also because there's, um, there's tourists that are along the highway. So, you know, plenty of people that falling off motorbikes or having car crashes and things like that. So, Yeah, and what sort of impact does that have on you guys there at the station when you um, hear about those accidents on the road? It's kind of great. Like, everybody puts in hand and helps to, um, yeah, make sure that these people are okay. But um, it's pretty terrible, yeah. Where were the people um, donating from? Like, were they all from remote areas or friends and family from back home? Who was supporting you guys to do that fundraising? 
Um, I would mainly say that it was actually people that aren't from remote areas that helped us the most, like any of our friends and family. Um, we all donated here, but yeah, a lot of people from yeah the cities or my family from Victoria, they donated as well. So yeah, it was really great. And is it something that you think you might do again another time, another fundraiser for RFDS? Yeah, it was definitely great to raise some money and um, actually stop and think about and appreciate everything that they do for us out here. Tobermory Station's Marley Blake, and if you want to help the Tobermory Station trekkers reach their donation goal, uh, you can donate to the team by searching for Tobermory Station RFDS online. It is 16 past one on the country hour. We've been talking about legacy mines on the program today. And we've heard from the NLC's Joe Martin Jard suggests that no new mines should be allowed to start up until the old mines are all cleaned up. And we've been getting some questions from you about the Ranger uranium mine and the big clean-up job happening out near Jabiru and how it's going. I'm joined in the shear by Dan Fitzgerald, our yellow cake correspondent. What is the latest? Out there at Ranger in the clean-up, Dan. Oh, well, it's still a very, very expensive job, Matt. The latest information we have from ERA is from a quarterly update issued to the ASX last month, which said the total rehabilitation costs related to Ranger Mine would materially exceed the previous forecast range of $1.6 to $2.2 billion. So it'll cost more than $2.2. Yep. Wow. It expects the final completion date will also be delayed. And in terms of the money that ERA has on hand, in that quarterly update, ERA said it had $273 million in available funding. So that is quite a way behind the $2.2 billion. As to what the total figure will be, um, ERA... uh, We might have to wait until next year to find that out. ERA said it received outcomes and data from its feasibility study, which is looking at costs and timelines, in October, and it says those matters are currently under review. There might need to be some more studies done, which will likely proceed into next year. Okay, thank you for keeping us up to date, Dan. And to those who texted in, I hope that answers some of your questions. I was flying, I was flying with the king. That is Flying with the King, Lee Kernigan, here on ABC Radio. Up next on the Country Hour, we're heading to a Rambutan farm that is busy harvesting and busy expanding. G'day, I'm Kerry Penny. I'm a Rambutan grower in the Northern Territory. I uh, have been growing them since probably 1988. We've had a few ups and downs over the years, but we think we're getting better at it. You're listening to the Country Hour. On ABC Local Radio across the Territory. <laughs> So we'll just go over here somewhere. Oh, it's one of my favourite times of the year. Christmas is just around the corner and I'm in a golf buggy at Kerry Yupini's farm checking out this year's Rambutan crop. Uh, Kerry, before I ask you about how the season's going, it looks to me like your farm's getting a little bit bigger. Tell me about that. Well, it is. Not only have we increased our planting of uh, rambutans, and a lot of them we've propagated ourselves, but we've been fortunate enough to get a grant from the government to extend our netting. Now, that's taken place. It was, a, it was a moment of some enlightenment, I thought, because it's a federal government 
um, incentive, but it's been administered by the Northern Territory Government and it's been of great benefit because we get a, a, a 50-50 grant on the cost of new netting, up to a limit of course, you can't do the, can't do the whole neighbourhood, but, <laughs> but it's, it, it's been really effective. I mean, it's called protective netting, and I, I guess it's to protect the farmer from the wildlife, but, you know, we're not sure who's the real benefactor of it all. But oh, There'd be lots of birds and possums and all sorts of things that would love to eat these rambutans. Yeah, yeah they're all hanging around, I can tell you that. <laughs> so how big is the expansion that you've done? Oh, in terms of square metres, it's probably about eight in this one and then a bit more, a couple of thousand over in the other one. So, you know, it's, it's well over the acre and a bit. So so something that you've always thought about doing? Well, we yes, we've thought about it for a long time, but obviously the cost was a real problem because, you know, we'd, we'd filled up most of our netted area here and uh, we were keen to expand with a few ideas that we had and uh, this just allowed us to, to get into it and to make the, make the step forward. So it, it's, a, it's a, you know, I take my hat off to the, to the NT uh, government. That's the plant, plant Industries Department particularly uh, that have been a, of great assistance. So here we are looking at, at fresh netting. What, what's the longevity like on netting on an orchard like this? Because of um, the UV, if we get 10 years, we think we're, we're doing well. Uh, and they'll give you some sort of guarantee but you know the, the, all nets aren't the same because they'll say they're UV resistant but often you'll see that they're starting to break down after four or five years But so you've got to go for really good quality net uh, and have it erected in a, in a professional manner and that's, that's what we do we, we have the people who just net orchards or net fish farms come up from down south and erect the netting for us and they they provide us with some of the best netting available on the market so. and so for a farm that has long been you know tinkering and, and trying new things testing varieties what is the plan for the fresh ground well we hope to to be more selective about our varietal types out there so we can do some some ongoing uh, tests to see which may be a better producer of fruit or the quality of the fruit and so we'll put in known varietal uh, plantings out there and uh, then we'll just keep an eye on how they perform over the next five years if we're still around doing it. And, and planting more rambutans, what's driving the confidence in this industry? Well, demand's always been good um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of a bit of a resurgence going on because I notice a lot of young farmers uh, are now thinking, well, rambutans might be a good alternative uh, fruit crop for the north here and uh, I think that's what's driving it but hopefully we'll all make a buck out of it, uh, you know, so uh, demand should increase and that should be able to uh, take up the increased uh, production that w will be coming through in the future. Yeah. And so this season, Kerry, how is it shaping up? Well, you know, Matt, it's probably a bit patchy and uh, there's been uh, difficulty in some areas and that was particularly because of the the, the heat and the, the ongoing heat but more so the dry wind and that went on for weeks and I think the old trees got very confused I reckon they wanted to go back to their native Malaysia after <laughs> after about the, 
after about the third or fourth week of just dry out wind because what happens it, it desiccates your flowers and then and then you you get no no uh, production of that tree at all and so it it's a bit dependent upon what stage the flowers are at too of course if they just forming up and the wind comes through then it's curtains for them so uh, in other parts of the orchard uh, where the flowers are a bit a bit more advanced we were able to get a reasonable good crop off it albeit that it's just started to fill out properly now after a bit of rain because no matter how much we irrigate we can't compensate for that rain as you know so we've got some good fruit coming through now and uh, as I say we're getting rid of it all so we've been to most parts of Australia so far with it. So, so for Remutan fans, they will start noticing this at the local markets and at major supermarkets. How long are you expecting the season to last for? Well, fortunately or unfortunately, um, <laughs> depends how you view it, there is a second crop coming through, although it's not as big as its first one. So potentially we'll have fruit in January, and as we always hope, to get over the Holy Grail of getting to Lunar New Year and uh, if that's the case then it's uh, it's on so hopefully we'll make it Merry Christmas Kerry <laughs> Merry Christmas Matt and keep eating Rambutans <laughs> A big thanks to Kerry Upini and that expansion work that he's done should allow him to plant around 100 extra Rambutan trees which in years to come will be a lot of extra Rambutans it's time down the country out ahead to the sale yards with all the latest prices out of Dublin. Here is John Traeger. Good afternoon. Quality was fair to good as agents offered 140 live weight and open auction cattle. The usual trade and process of buyers, especially butchers and restockers, provided generally good competition with all classes selling to a dearer trend. Vila steers sold from 160 to 238 cents, as Vila heifers sold from 182 to 218 cents. Ealing steers sold from 220 to 250 cents, with Ealing heifers ranging from 164 to 204 cents. Grown steers sold from 170 to 220 cents, as grown heifers ranged from 150 to 180 cents. Heavy cows sold from 160 to 180 cents, with heavy bulls selling to 180 cents a kilo. This is John Traker of the South Australian Livestock Exchange for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thank you for that, John. In the live export trade, feeder steers to Indonesia via the Darwin Port are getting around $2.70 a kilo. From what I can tell on the Darwin Ports calendar, there's three live export ships due out over the next seven days. So a bit of action in the live export trade, which is great to see. Radars this afternoon across the Northern Territory are lit up like a Christmas tree. There's plenty of colour there this afternoon. Storms about the top end and some rain around Central Australia as well. The Weather Bureau has told us that some of these storms have the potential to turn a bit nasty later on today. So make sure you stay up to date via the ABC, your emergency broadcaster. Keep it rural. <laughs>